Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Solutions Pod, where we talk to some awesome people about some of the solutions they're working on to make the world a better place. And uh, today we are going to talk about something that has recently come onto my radar. Um, actually, two things, uh, metamodern localism and uh, bioregional regeneration. And uh, today we're going to be talking to Jason Snyder, who is a... Um, a homesteader, permaculturalist, uh, and uh, he is also a, a PhD um, from Michigan State in the uh, Department of Agriculture, Food, and Resource Economics. And he is currently faculty at the at App State um, in the Department of Sustainable Development. Um, so, thank you so much for joining us, Jason. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. So I, um, I found you on Twitter and one of the things that really stuck out to me was uh, the fact that you are like, optimistic about uh, the, the possible coming collapse that a lot of people are starting to talk about a lot with uh, you know, the stock market, I think has gone up about what, 75% in the last maybe 10 or 11 years. And, uh, and I think people are starting to, uh, to start to recognize that not only are, are, are humans living unsustainably, um, you know, in terms of how we're treating the planet, but also just like, that doesn't make any sense. How can, how can any system multiply by four and, you know, continue to, you know, be stable? So um, what are your thoughts on, uh, I guess, what's going on? Uh, like, why, why are we coming to this place where, um, you know, we've reached such instability Wow, that's a that's a big question, um, and it's definitely not um, there's definitely not one cause. It's not monocausal. Well, you know, uh, I really like Joe Brewer's framing, where in his recent book he traces it all the way back to pre-hominids, you know, and our ability to uh, think in terms of metaphor, to wield tools, and basically to increase complexity of our physical bodies and our and our social organizations at the complexity, at the expense of the complexity of the larger ecosystem, usually, um, you know, thermodynamics, um, you know, it's tied to a lot of thermodynamics. Um, and, you know, as a global scale thing, it wasn't really an issue, wasn't really that problematic until the industrial revolution, until we, we you know, found out about fossil fuels. And fossil fuels are, you know, un, uh, kind of a world historic, um, you know, dense, uh, storable, you know, mobile energy source that, you know, I believe was a big factor in allowing, you know, basically what we're seeing today, modern kind of technological globalist society to really take off. Um, now, of course, uh, things were great, you know, for a while, or they seemed great for some people, right? There, it also involved a lot of colonial extraction and enclosure and, uh, you know, earlier on slavery and many other, you know, many environmental injustices. But now I think all of us are starting to recognize that um, it's unsustainable uh, for, for many reasons. You know, one, uh, everyone hears about climate change. Uh, business as usual will eventually kill us. Um, uh, but there's also many other earth limits that we're surpassing, uh, biodiversity loss, uh, geochemical flows, uh, ocean acidification, uh, many other earth limits that, um, you know, will eventually do us in if we, if we don't 
move into a more regenerative mode. Uh, but energy, I think, is also a big concern. You know, even if you're not, if you're not really environmentally minded, um, we're we're going to run out of fossil fuels. Um, we're we're going to stop using them one way or the other. We can't continue to use them for climate reasons. But it's becoming, as far as I understand, it's becoming more expensive to extract fossil fuels as well. Uh, like we had a shale oil boom in the last decade or so, which you know has kept prices pretty pretty cheap. But um, you know, things I, I I predict that energy is going to start getting more expensive. And of course, we want to switch over to renewable energy. Uh, but renewable energy is also not a silver bullet. Um, it takes energy to extract the resources you need to produce solar panels and to manufacture them, uh, things like that. Um, and and just the nature of much of renewable energy, it's more based on flows instead of stocks, right? Like Fossil fuels are, are very easy to store and to move around. Um, but once you start moving to renewables, um, you know, it's, it's questionable whether we can maintain the same level of energetic throughput in the global economy that, that we still can. And so, you know, and then of course we have, you know, the problems of modernity that a lot of people, you know, people that might be more like traditionally minded point out of like, you know, many, many places are being hollowed out you know, culturally, you know, just speaking in the United States, you know, rural area used to be a lot more vibrant, um, you know, it had other problems, you know, it's probably also more racist, but, you know, there were, there was still many, you know, there was still much, much more going on in, in rural areas, uh, from what I understand in the past than now. So there's, there's, there's kind of been this trend towards specialization, urbanization, um, and uh, a lot of people are very disconnected from the sources of their sustenance, and that, you know, the, the means of of their actual survival, they're very specialized. And, and if the whole infrastructure that supports their way of life, you know, suddenly cannot maintain itself, um, you know, we're in big trouble. But I, I, but I also think there's a spiritual component to that where we're, we're actually disconnected from the earth, like the mind-body dualism or the, the, you know, human nature dualism has gone to such an extreme that I think, I think that's, you know, largely responsible for a lot of kind of our, you know, our, our social ills, so to speak, or our psychological ills. Um, so for, you know, for, for all of these reasons, I, I, I don't see the current system as sustainable. But then the question is, and so that, that would make me kind of a, a doomer, right? But then, but then, you know, I call myself a doomer optimist because I do think that there is an alternative path that, you know, that, that you're also involved with. Uh, and that has to do with bioregionalism, uh, with uh, permaculture, um, many other things that we can talk about. Um, and there's many different kind of movements that are moving in that direction, decentralization movement, the localist movement, even like metamodernism, which we can get into if you want, um, which I, I think that you know, many of these movements that are responding to, to the meaning and ecological crisis um, need to kind of come together and, and figure stuff out um, and, and move in a different direction. Yeah, it's, it's certainly uh, kind of disturbing to, to, to watch how, how things have been going these, these last mm -hmm. few years. And um, it, just, it just seems like more and more people are, are becoming aware of it. So that's sort of the, what, what makes me optimistic about it. But at the same time, um, I guess if we don't start unpacking some of these solutions, uh, and then the collapse just happened like right now, I, I don't think we'd be prepared. So I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are in, in terms of how we can start 
uh, or not start, but how we can, because I know a lot of people have been working on it, such as mm -hmm. yourself for quite a while, but how can we accelerate the planting of these, uh, I guess, seeds of, uh, I guess, new ways of living? Um, and, and how does bioregionalism play into that? I guess, first of all, what is bioregionalism? Mm -hmm. um, so, so bioregionalism is uh, a recognition that uh, as Joe Brewer puts it, we should be designing human systems around landscapes, around ecological systems. Um, and so like our borders should reflect more natural boundaries, ecological boundaries, and also cultural. And I think those two can't easily be uh, disentangled. Um, and so, you know, it, it's, it's trying to figure out as a bioregion, how do you live within the limits of the bioregion? How do you, and, and, and when you're thinking along those lines, you're thinking, you know, in terms of like circular economies, like like how much, like how self how self sufficient is the bioregion? And of course, I, I'm not anti trade. I think that there's, you know, there can and should still be trade, you know, across bioregions. But I, I just think it's a very useful scale uh, to to imagine how can we provision for ourselves uh, in a non extractive um, uh, and 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 you know a regenerative way um you know uh, with you know a sensitivity towards place towards watersheds right towards externalities right i, I think a lot of a, a big reason why global capitalism you know like we talk about externalities uh you know things like pollution but also things like you know things like um political instability um you know we're able to get away with that because we're not we're not actually, you know, uh, we're not actually responsible for, for, you know, for the harm that we're causing, right? It can be outsourced to another country, you know, in the form of environmental harm or low wage, you know, extremely low wages or something like that. Um, and at a bioregional scale, it's much harder to get away with that, right? Like you're actually forced to, to reckon with, you know, the, the means of your sustenance. And, and when you're, Forced to do that, you start thinking in a more sustainable way. Like, well, how do we make sure we don't lose our soil, right? Like, how do we make sure that we don't pollute our water? Uh, where does our food come from? Where do our fibers come from? Um, and yeah, I guess that would be that, that that would be a short answer as to why why bioregionalism. Hmm. So um, yeah, so I guess right now, it to me, it seems like the like the, the corporations and the, the big power players that are, are kind of, you know, just shifting around the, the, the pieces on the board, um, you know, with the USDA, uh, you know, the, the last head was uh, Sonny Perdue and now it's uh, the former head of Monsanto. And, you know, things aren't really changing and you've got so much, so much guards up uh, or so many guards up against um, uh, any kind of meaningful um, change. So like, Without uh, the support of, I guess, uh, the government or whatever, how can people start to uh, initiate these types of um, bioregional systems in their own areas? Yeah, I mean, so currently we're definitely swimming upstream, right? Because you know, big ag industrial agriculture is subsidized by the government. Um, you know, there's a lot of like one size fits all regulations that don't actually apply to like small scale producers, but you know, it still makes it makes their business models extremely difficult. Um, so, so we're definitely swimming upstream at the moment. Um, 
there's a couple ways I want to answer this. The first way is I don't think that the status quo can maintain itself. You know, for some of the reasons that I that I mentioned initially, um, I just don't think we have. You know, um, I, I don't think the supply chains that that support, you know, these large scale um, systems can maintain themselves energetically, but also ecologically and, and, and climate wise. And so, uh, I just think we're going to see more and more parts of the system start to crumble. Um, you mentioned, you know, this idea of collapse, I think earlier, um, and I, I don't see collapse as like something that happens overnight, right? And, and I think collapse might actually be a bad word for it. Um, the way that John Michael Greer puts it is like, he has this term catabolic collapse, but the way he describes it is that it's really this kind of like um, punctuated decline where, uh, you know, you, you get some kind of shock to the system and, uh, and then you get a new equilibrium for a while and then you get another shock to the system. Uh, but each shock, each time one of those shocks happens, it, it causes a lot of damage, you know, people suffer, people die, uh, but it also creates opportunities uh, for, to do things in a different way and, and people wake up. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're seeing this, I think with the pandemic, you know, just the amount of, and this just might be anecdotal, it's not a scientific finding, but you know, it just seems like the interest in things like permaculture, homesteading, you know, localism, which is a kind of a thing of like a sister concept of bioregionalism, uh, the interest in that is, is exploding. And I'm, I'm definitely seeing that online. A lot of people, you know, reach out to me all the time, uh, wanting to move in this direction. Uh, and, and so, you know, so, and so I think that's an example. And then, you know, the, there's structural things that happen with the pandemic, like more people are now working remotely, you know, of course, to be able to work, work remotely is very is a very privileged position, and so, but still, you know, more people um, might you know uh, be freed up to spend more time in a community garden, or you know, get some land and start cultivating the land. Um, and so, you know, as, as horrible as the pandemic has been, it's also pre prevented presented opportunities, and it's it's, it's woken some people up. Um, in terms of like what we can do, I mean, so. A big bottleneck, I think, to like small scale, you know, so like I'm, I'm really interested in food systems, like that's my major focus. And so like, and it's particularly like regenerative ag and small scale ag. Uh, and the biggest bottleneck to that right now is just land prices. Like it's just really expensive. It's really hard to become a small scale farmer these days. Um, but, you know, I think that there are other ways around it. You know, if you live in suburbia and you have a lawn, I mean, how many, how many lawns can be torn up and turned into you know, gardens and food forests or, you know, orchards and stuff like that, like a lot, right? Um, in cities, community gardening uh, and also in suburbs, community gardening is starting to take off. Uh, when I lived in the suburb in, in Michigan, you know, we were part of a community garden, you know, so that, that that's a way to have access to land without necessarily having to own it. Um, I think, you know, when we're talking about localization, uh, you know, there's some things that are lower hanging fruit than others. Uh, food is a low-hanging fruit. Like, how much of your food can you can you provision locally? Um, and even there, it's hard for some people, and it's an equity issue because you know it's often more expensive because you're actually you're not actually you're actually paying the real paying the real price for food. You're not paying the subsidized you know uh, price with negative externalities and all of that. Um, uh, but you know, if you can grow some of your own food, if you can buy it directly from neighbors in bulk, you know, like if if you have, if you, if you have, if you know, somebody who raises livestock and you can buy meat from them in bulk, something like that. Um, 
but I, you know, so I, I think food is like the lowest hanging fruit. Of course, eventually we will, we will want to get more into like clothing, fibers, um, decentralized manufacturing. Uh, there's this term cosmolocalism, which is about like having like a global commons, you know, uh, uh, kind of a global commons of information and design, but you actually manufacture more locally. Of course, you, you might still have to trade for raw material resources and stuff like that. Um, but in terms of like where to start, I would just tell people to start growing stuff start growing, start growing some of their own food. Yeah. And I, I guess for, for me, I, I started noticing a huge difference in how I felt when I started incorporating a lot more organic foods and in, into my, uh, you know, routine and cut out all the processed junk, you know, so it's like a lot of these cheap foods, they, they do have other hidden costs uh, to our health and, and also just, you know, our communities. But um, yeah, I think, I think you're right. Like tearing up the, the suburban lawns would be a great thing. I, I tried to do that myself. And um, I had to like buy off the neighbors. Um, fortunately, I didn't live in a like a, a homeowners association zone. But I, you know, I would like bring the neighbors pumpkins just to make sure they didn't, you know, yeah, I don't know, call the police because I th there are literally places in, in Florida where it's it's illegal to have a garden in your front yard, which is so ridiculous. But right, right. Um, yeah, yeah, a lot of these regulations that that's, you know, a lot of the zoning laws are just so completely outdated. Um, you know, I mean, I understand if, you know, your neighbors don't want you to have a rooster in your yard waking them up every morning, but, you know, a well-managed chicken coop with hens, come on. Um, uh, yeah, and, and this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, and what would you rather hear? Would you rather hear my, my cow like mooing or my lawnmower, you know, waking you up right. on Sunday morning? There, there you go. I mean, I, go. I, I would rather have a cow in our backyard. <laughs> Yeah, it might be a little sure. difficult to step around the, the cow shit all the time, but you know, it's yeah, it's kind of a, a fun thought experiment. So, um, well, I'm I'm glad that you're, I guess, optimistic about about this, and so you're kind of imagining a stair step collapse where you, you have basically certain support lines, um, and then uh, you know maybe things will try to come back, and then but right, right now it feels like there's definitely it's it's like they're forcing things to shut down. Uh, like literally forcing them to shut down to maybe accelerate the process. I don't know, whatever decay that we're experiencing. Um, but I guess my fear is that they're going to just use that to consolidate the control, control structures. And uh, I guess I'm, I'm sort of secretly hoping that people will, will kind of rebel against that and, and say enough is enough. We're going to plant, you know, we're going to plant our gardens where we want to plant our gardens. And mm. um, yeah, a lot of this really comes back to um, for me, like just being able to maintain the the resilience within different you know ecosystems and yeah the the whole model that we have right now is you know when you have so much pollution in, in you know places like China and you know other parts of the world it's it's killing like things can't survive including humans so um, I'm I'm kind of curious if you've done any like. Uh, if you if you've done much digging into like what makes a, a community like more viable like what is it about certain certain communities that you know break out and, and try to do um, you know community agriculture and homesteading and things that that don't work versus the ones that like actually make it and continue to grow and and replicate yeah I mean so I'm still trying to figure that out myself um, you know I'm I'm actually pretty new in the bioregional scene. And also I'm pretty new trying to practice permaculture. Um, my education was actually much more of a mainstream technocratic um, applied economics 
uh, background. Um, and so a lot of my answer will be not based on personal experience. Um, you know, uh, what I'm trying to do here, um, of course, it's been hard because of the pandemic and I haven't really had a chance to meet a lot of my neighbors in this first year we've been here. But, you know, I, you know, I think one, you know, you have to be sensitive to kind of local culture and traditions, right? So like a bunch of, you know, rural North Carolina, a bunch of hippies moving in and, you know, kind of dictating what needs to happen is not gonna work. It's not gonna work out, right? Um, so, but, you know, also recognizing that there's a long history where I am of, you know, of self-provisioning, you know, long history of people having gardens and that, you know, diversified food supplies um, and local agriculture. And so trying to make connections and, you know, reaching across, you know, oftentimes ideological lines, you know, not, not shying away if they're, you know, they vote for, voted for Trump in the national election, but we still align on many kind of localist principles. Um, and, and so in, in a case like this, it would be more of like, a, you know, I, I'd, I'd envision more of kind of a distributionist kind of setup where you have a lot of different people, you know, owning a little bit of land, and then you, you start developing a community and a village economy uh, and a mutual aid, you know, a, kind of a mutual aid ethos, which again, was also here in kind of traditional Appalachia in the past, you know, that, that ethos was, was definitely there as well. Um, in other places, you might have something that's more socialized, um, you know, explicitly. Uh, so you might have like, you know, somebody buy, you know, create a land trust. You might have like permaculture cooperatives that's like democratically, you know, kind of democratically run. Um, you know, I think that's, you know, uh, I know a lot of people are, are trying to do stuff like that. I know in the game B space with their proto Bs, like that, that's basically what they're trying, what they're trying to do. Um, and, you know, I think that's great as well, but I think we have to be flexible because, you know, and this kind of spectrum of like how much of stuff is privately owned versus how much of it is publicly owned, how much of it is commons versus not commons. I think we have to be a little flexible with that, right? Like, because there's a lot of people interested in kind of local food, permaculture, you know, that are pretty right wing, to be frank, and are pretty traditional. And they're not, they're not interested in, in going to live on a commune, right? And, uh, and, and so I think we have to be, we, we can't be too dogmatic in, in, in how it'll look in any given place. Of course, you know, any comp, you know, I, I also think the more it can evolve and be organic, the better, because, you know, trying to create these social experiments often fail just because people don't get along and, you know, you have issues with maturity and, you know, different levels of personal development, um, things like that. Um, so I guess, you know, I guess the way I would put it is you can have a bunch of Jack Spearcoes, he considers himself like an anarcho-capitalist, but a permaculture enthusiast, or you can have a bunch of Zapatistas. And I think both, both models can work. Yeah, and hopefully we, you know, I, I guess for me, the worst case scenario would be if, you know, the a government decided to push one of them and, and not allow any kind of creativity or flexibility, because I, I think that's, yeah. you know, we really don't quite know the exact solution. And the, I think the whole point of, one of the big points of bioregional regeneration is that the same solution can't fit in any, you know, you can't have a one size fits all anywhere, it just it doesn't make sense, you know, environmentally speaking. Right. Um, you know, I, I, just, just to tag on your point about, you know, you see that there might be like power centralization. I think we're seeing that, you know, like, I think, you know, we're seeing small businesses fail because of the pandemic and you're seeing Amazon, the Amazons of the world rise. Um, 
you know, we're seeing a trend of like eco-modernism, which is kind of a, you know, comes from a kind of urbanist technocratic perspective. Uh, and I tend to tend to reject, um, although some of the technologies that come out of that might be useful. Um, but again, I just think, you know, thermodynamically, it's just, you know, like, like we might get, you know, periods of authoritarian response, whether it's from the left or the right, to be frank. Um, but I just don't think that they'll be able to maintain themselves. And so, and, and so we have to figure out how to be agorists, how to be anarchists, you know, how to obey the law when it works and, and to, you know, and to do our own thing when it's oppressive. Yeah, one of the really scary things that I'm noticing um, kind of permeate, at least in, in Twitter, that's not necessarily, you know, representative of, of reality, you know, because Twitter can just give you whatever they want you to see in the feed. I, I don't know how the algorithm works, but you know, there's this kind of growing idea among a lot of the youth that, you know, communism is the answer. And like, I'm right next door to China. And I guess being in Taiwan, there's, because people here understand the language and have access, like, linguistically to the language over there they're kind of you know they're kind of more aware of the, the failings of the the communist state over there and also it's like there's there's like massive waves of pollution always like drifting over here and like you can't see more than a few hundred meters and it's like um you know this idea of this really efficient like beautiful like super green china it, it's like in everybody's imagination but they're they're controlling the media so well that like yeah. I guess Westerners don't often hear about the shortcomings. Um, but then, uh, you know, it's like, <laughs> at the end of the day, fascism and, and communism, they're both totalitarian. And yeah. so <laughs> to, me, to me, both of those are scary options. Yeah, it's the, it's the horseshoe theory of totalitarianism. Um, you know, I, I, I think that there's a couple interesting kind of um, political axes that are, are underrated. And one is, you know, uh, centralized versus decentralized or globalist versus localist or you know you, you can put it however you want technocratic versus grassroots uh, and then there's kind of like you know kind of going back to what I was talking about before with eco-modernism there's what I would call the rocket people and the tree people and the rocket people you know are dead set on um, inventing their way out of you know all of these large-scale problems um, and not you know not considering any discussion of, you know, degrowth or um, alternative agriculture, things like that, uh, you know, and and it's it's to me, at least from my perception, it, it's been an interesting reshuffling of my, you know, how I think of politics. I, I grew up thinking left and right, right? Like I was more on the left, and you know, people, on, you know, when I was in high school, people on the right were like evil. Uh, they were tied to the corporations and. And these days, there's a lot of people on the right that are like, you know, uh, screw, you know, screw hedge funders, right? Like, and uh, screw Wall Street, like they're, you know, they're part of the state, you know, they're, they've captured the state, you know? Uh, and so I just think we have to kind of reshuffle the, all of these political categories that we've grown up with and, you know, recognize, you know, where you can find the alliances that, you know, uh, from where I'm coming from is more of a localist, bioregionalist perspective. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, th I think that was really fascinating a few weeks ago to see um, all the Redditors, you know, unite in this like massive effort against the hedge funds and uh, with the with the game and uh, yeah. GameStop stock. And, you know, it, it was pretty interesting to watch. And, uh, yeah. 
yeah, I don't, I didn't hear very much politics coming into that. It was just like a bunch of people saying, screw yeah. this. Right. <laughs> but, um, hopefully, yeah. hopefully the, like, people will, will actually start to break away and, and not try to, to challenge like the hedge funders at their own games where they don't right. have abilities to rig the system. Yeah. Um, so does that, I'm, I'm kind of curious. So you, you kind of came into this from a different angle. I'm kind of curious, like how you, how you eventually got into, um, you know, this, this kind of way of, of thinking. Um, you know, I don't know if there was like one moment, um, you know, I was, I was finishing my PhD. Um, I was studying, uh, food system stuff in Tanzania. Uh, and, and I was just kind of miserable and I didn't really, I don't know. I just kind of lost faith in, in kind of that kind of research in general of like doing surveys and collecting data and then coming up with policy reports that hopefully the government picks up for a variety of reasons, um, uh, which I can get into if you want, but, and so, you know, I started getting on Twitter. It was kind of like my escape. Uh, and, you know, and I started with kind of like the contemplative scene, you know, like pragmatic Dharma and stuff like that. Uh, Cause that's what I was really inter interested in at the time. And then I, I learned about like metamodernism and, uh, and that was interesting and, and started kind of, you know, eventually started a podcast uh, with a friend called Both End. Um, and, and then, you know, I, I just, you know, I, I started getting interested in kind of, you know, these ideas of bioregionalism, localism, I, they just kind of came across my consciousness. And, and I think, you know, it wasn't really until I think I got here to North Carolina and, and in an apartment where a lot of people, you know, are aligned with this kind of like sustainable, regenerative, local kind of vision. Um, so interacting with them uh, helped um, getting my own land and, and then deciding, you know, and that was around the time that like, I've been following like Joe Brewer's work and, you know, Daniel Christian Wall and, and other people in that scene uh, and, you know, getting some land and then being like, oh, well, I, you know, how, what do I own through land? Well, permaculture seems pretty good. So I started reading about permaculture. Um, so just kind of slowly, but surely, you know, I don't know, like, like I, I, I just, I, I started losing faith in kind of technocratic modernism. Um, and I started gaining faith in, uh, what, what would be the opposite of that? Uh, <laughs> whatever would be the opposite of that. Um, you know, more of a localist vision. Um, there was actually a point where I was kind of skeptical of localism. And I remember hearing a discussion with Joe Norman, who's kind of, you know, one of the leading kind of localist proponents, at least online. Uh, and he was talking about how it's a minimum viable scale. And I was like, okay, so it's not saying that every problem can be solved, you know, within your watershed or within your little village, but, you know, um, you should, in terms of both governance and, and economics, you, you should search for the most minimal viable scale. And there's just so many, there's so many problems that that solves. Um, it solves uh, issues of risk. Uh, you know, if you have a centralized system and it breaks down, you know, the impact is humongous. Um, but it also, you know, it, it solves the problem or it doesn't solve it, but it, it moves towards a solution of uh, a more circular economy. Uh, and, and a sense of place and, and, and people who, who live, who are more aware of the, of, of earth limits um, because it's local, uh, it's local to them. And, um, you know, our, 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 it's, it's, it's not as easy to externalize the cost of that. So, yeah, I mean, 
just, you know, death by a thousand paper cuts uh, <laughs> uh, led me in this direction, I guess. But it's really been the last year that, you know, it's really, I've become a, you know, I, I've, I've become born again in this, in this particular, but, you know, at the same time, I, you know, I, I'm trying to balance perspective. So I'm actually, um, I'm going to be leading a STOA session next month, um, basically saying, hey, look, like localists, bioregionalists, decentralized, you know, people into decentralization and also metamodernists, like you might not hang out with each other, but a lot of your ideas kind of align. Um, and so how can we think about, you know, uh, building a more broad-based movement that um, brings in a lot of perspectives and, uh, and incorporates critiques and things like that? So it's not, you know, uh, I think, I think we have it oftentimes because we're searching for purity, you know, we tend to kind of marginalize ourselves and to create movements that won't, won't have much impact because, you know, um, you know, I see this a lot with like, you know, the localist scene and the bioregionalist scene, they're, they're kind of two separate camps and there's some overlap for sure. And I think there's becoming more overlap and I'm trying to be a bridge between those two scenes, but you know, they're like, 90% aligned and there's a few like culture war issues that they're not aligned with right um, and it's just like what are we doing like the, the the problems we face are so much bigger than our little differences um, that you know we really need to figure out how to you know uh, how to become a broader based movement yeah that's that's super important to be able to bridge the the commonalities and I think that's one of the the things that I see that's really scary uh, you know, from being out of the U.S. for over a year now, mm -hmm. just kind of looking at the political machinery of, of the U.S., it's like, wow, people really start to hate each other on the different side of the political spectrum. It's it's like they get so lost in the hate they don't even really know why. It's it's sort of like yeah. getting past our emotional state and like thinking, you know, you know, like, I guess you know, going into our our, our prefrontal cortex and, and yeah, like, rationally thinking, okay, well, how does this really affect me? And, you know, it, it, it's kind of hard to get people to do that. And I, I know so many smart people, like, I mean, think about how many denominations of churches in the U.S. Like, there's mm -hmm. these tiny differences, like, well, you you dunk the, the baby instead of, uh, you know, sprinkling them. Like, well, let's let's yeah. excommunicate you. <laughs> it's, just, it's, right. it's so ridiculous <laughs> when people yeah. form these these rigid lines that really don't have any benefit, you know, if, if these 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 movements need to come together because there's not enough. Yeah, and, there, and you know, traditionally for, you know, for for people to come together, there, there needs to be a common enemy. And I, but, I, but I think now the common enemy is uh, the viability of the human race, mm -hmm. right? Um, so the human enemy is not necessarily like, like, you know, we might try and pin it on like, you know, the evil globalist or, or something like that, or, you know, whoever, whoever we want to pin it on, right? Um, depending on your, if you're left or right, it'll be different people. Um, but, you know, intrinsically, I think it's, it's really our own survival. And it's gotten to the point where the only thing that can, you know, unite people and build this broad-based movement is, you know, is this larger, you know, ironically, you know, in order for localists to align, you need to have a planetary vision. Um, and, um, you know, and that also will require, you know, communication, planetary communication, collective intelligence, you know, which, which digital technology makes possible. Um, of course, our digital electric infrastructure might also collapse, you know, at some point. But um, in the meantime, uh, 
you know, we have, and, and that, so this brings into the, a new term that I'll introduce, uh, like cosmopolitan localism or cosmolocalism, which is about, you know, kind of, a, you know, in terms of like, our, you know, production, you know, of goods and resources, that's done much more locally, but in terms of like ideas, you know, uh, sharing ideas, transferring information, collaborating, uh, that can that can happen uh, at larger scales, and indeed it has to. Like there's there's global level issues that we can't deny. Like the refugee crisis that's going to be coming, that is coming, and is going to be coming from climate change. I mean, hundreds of millions of people are going to be are going to be displaced, um, and I don't I don't think that's a local issue. I think that's a global issue because especially you know the global north has contributed the most to the emissions, right? And so that's something where, or something like nuclear prol proliferation. Like there, there's just some issues that have to be address globally, but, you know, I would hope that it would be, uh, it would come from an emergent collective intelligence instead of kind of a top-down technocratic, you know, solution. Hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely a good point. You know, with, with all the, the, the coming human crises that we're, are, are, we're kind of setting ourselves up for as a race, because that, that creates a lot of problems. So the, the people who are, you know, kind of just wanting to be you know, in their conservative bubble, it's like, well, these things are going to come back and affect um, everybody. So if, if, if everybody mm -hmm. in the planet is, is, you know, able to take care of themselves more then you're going to mm -hmm. be able to have a better chance of, of uh, you know, maybe keeping your little property bubble if you want to have independent, you know, you know, land over here without it being, I guess, you know, you've been driven off of it by the angry masses. So yeah, um, yeah we've got to figure out um, a way to you know, yeah, prevent those crises from happening. I guess one of the things you mentioned about the, um, I guess, keeping the open communication with, uh, uh, what, what was the term you were using? Cosmopolitan, uh, cosmopolitan. Yeah, I use two terms. I use cosmopolitan localism and cosmolocalism, and they're, and they're they're slightly different. But the cosmopolitan localism is is just more of this idea of, like, like think global, act local, basically. Okay. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm hoping that we, we still have the ability to, to have this free communication. You know, I, I guess I'm yeah. trying not to take too for granted that, that the internet is always going to be a stable thing, especially with them kind of hinting in the, in the news cycles. Oh, yeah, there's going to be some sort of a, uh, an E911 or, you know, you know yeah. hopefully that's not like. Uh, right. There's a, you know, there's, there's a big, you know, growing body of literature on you know, what happens if the peak oil people are correct and, you know, we have a huge instant energy crunch. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, John Kunstler, I think his name is, first name is John, you know, he has, a, he, has a, he has a book series that I recently read called A World Made by Hand, it's four, it's four fiction books, but he's basically imagining a, a world where you basically lose access to electricity and what would that look like? Uh, spoiler, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty devastating. <laughs> mm. Like majority of the population of the, of the, of the earth dies and you have a few places here and there that thrive because they're, you know, they're able to, to work together as a community and, you know, grow their own food and stuff like that. Um, I'm hoping that that's not, that's not the trajectory. I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, with things like, you know, uh, renewable energy and stuff like that, I don't think we can maintain our current energy usage, the, the material throughput of the economy, but, you know, if we can maintain enough to still communicate, um, I think that, you know, ultimately that'll save a lot of uh, suffering and death. Yeah, um, hopefully the, the, the whole solar uh, 
I guess the solar technology seems to be getting a lot more efficient in the last few years. I remember just 10 years ago when I could have never afforded to buy a solar panel. And now I, you know, when I was traveling across the country, I had one in my car and it was yeah. no big deal. Um, but yeah, I guess that, that kind of thing is, is going to hopefully mitigate the, 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 the collapse stages, you know, if, uh, cause if things start to accelerate too fast and they collapse, then it seems like it's just gonna, you know, the decay yeah, it takes time to transition, but even, you know, like solar, I think, you know, is, is, is great, but still, you know, like, you know, the material, what are the materials that go into solar, right? It's like cobalt. Where do we get cobalt? We get it in the Congo with slave labor, uh, basically, mm. uh, lithium, you know, ramping up lithium production all over the world. There's all kinds of environmental externalities with that. Um, you know, and so, you know, again, as, as much as I, you know, uh, am happy about breakthroughs in certain renewable energies, you know, I, I just don't think we can get around the fact that we have to just use a lot less energy and, you mm -hmm. know, be less wasteful, um, you know, th things of that nature as well. That's, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Uh. It also takes energy to produce solar panels and, and to, you know, to mine all the equipment as well. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so what, what would you, what would you offer or say as a, I guess, so, hmm. you know, actually I, I kind of want to go into something that you mentioned earlier and I, um, maybe this is way off topic, but you mentioned it twice. And I, I think a lot of people that are listening to this probably don't under, don't know the term yet. So could you tell us a little bit about, um, uh, I guess, metamodern localism. So you already went over <laughs> Cosmo localism, but what is metamodern localism? And, and how does that fit in? It's it's me smushing two words together that probably don't have any 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 um, you know any point being together, but maybe they do. Um, I'm trying to make it a thing. So metamodernism is al already uh, a broad topic. Um, you know, there's kind of two. The, the term is used in two main ways. One is kind of as a, as a kind of a epistem, uh, kind of a social sensibility. Um, and that's, you know, it's, it's not, it's kind of a descriptive instead of a prescriptive thing where, the, you know, it's basically people recognizing that, hey, we go through these phases of like, you know, we have like many stages before modernism, but then we have this thing called postmodernism, you know, which is kind of like deconstructing all of these grand narratives of modernism. But then people are getting tired of postmodernism because it's, you know, maybe it becomes too nihilistic and cynical and you know, like, well, we still need narratives to be able to operate in the world. And so maybe we can be more conscious about how they're developed. And so there's there's one camp that's more like descriptive and they're the original camp of like, there's some new trend. There's some kind of new cultural phenomenon happening in arts and in the, in the arts and pop culture and stuff like that. Uh, and then there's the prescriptive kind, uh, you know, and this is kind of a whole ecology, but, you know, probably the main, best known figures is is the, the author Hansi Freinacht, who's actually not a real person, but it's two different authors, um, but he's kind of a, you know, they created a character for him. And it's kind of related to Integral. I don't know if you've heard of Integral, uh, like Ken Wilber and, and, and those people, uh, but they're really interested in things like uh, developmental stage theory, both like cultural stage theory. So it has a similarity with the descriptive kind of like, we go through these stages and, and now the meta-modern stage is what we need to kind of save the planet. Uh, but also like personal development. So like, you know, like different people, like, you know, drawing on like the model of higher complexity, Robert Kagan, five stage model of human development, you know, all of these kind of like psychological development theories and kind of bringing those together to basically say like, hey, we need a new kind of politics 
that goes beyond postmodernism and is actually, you know, you know, acknowledges kind of the inherent nebulosity of, of and emptiness of like grand narratives, but constructing them anyway, because we need them. Uh, my critique of developmental or political metamodernism is that I think it's too, like it, it's like the people who are proponents of it, they come too much from an urban perspective. They come too much from a technocratic perspective, um, you know, as well as kind of a, uh, well, I guess those are the two main things. Uh, and, and so, you know, this last year I've kind of like, you know, thrown, put that aside. Like that, I was really interested in metamodernism for a while and put that aside towards this localism by regionalism stuff. But, but now I'm thinking, well, you know, there has to be some kind of synthesis here. Um, and, you know, I'm gonna be talking about it in about a month. I'm still need to flesh it out, but I think, uh, you know, uh, how I'm thinking about it right now is that you know, in order for localism or bioregionalism to work, there still needs to be capacity for higher level, higher scale communication and collective action when necessary. Uh, and in order to do that, you're going to need to have collective intelligence and you're going to need to have, you know, systems of communication that don't, you know, that don't straw man each other and, you know, don't, don't create scapegoats when it's not necessary. And that requires a level of kind of cultural you know, both an understanding of kind of like cultural development and also personal development uh, that, you know, so I, so I guess another way to put it is in order for cosmopolitan localism to be viable, you need a lot of the, the, the tool sets in political metamodernism to, to actually make it viable. Um, so that, that's my kind of very rough thinking right now. I still need to flesh it out before I present on it. Hmm. Yeah, but I like that. I mean, the, the, there is just so, so much chaos and confusion in, in uh, you know, modern day society and just like the breakdown of, of all these cultures that had been so well-functioning and well, to some extent not, but it's, it's uh, definitely, I think, imp important to intentionally recreate cultures um, in that kind of localized way. And uh, yeah, I, I hope we can, can, can be able to um, have have you know community upwards instead of top down systems that you know don't yeah. um, don't try to uh, I guess destroy each other. <laughs> don't right, try. yeah, community upwards, but there still needs to be ways for this upwards to happen, right? And I think that's you know because right now if we look at the current internet environment, you know it's like everyone's in their own reality tunnel, right? Like you know. Twitter is, is you know, I, I, I feel like I can use it pretty effectively for my purposes, but, you know, it's it's kind of generally a clusterfuck. Um, you know, you can edit out that word if you want. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's, it, you know it, it's generally, you know, it, it's, you know, you can kind of see this kind of factionalization. Uh, there's this there's this article written by Peter Lindbergh a couple of years ago and Connor Barnes called Culture War 2.0, where they kind of outline all of these like new kind of little what they call tribes in, in kind of the culture war that you know spawned from the internet and developed a term called mimetic mediation which i've also written about of like how do you build connections among all of these different tribes um and in sort and so for order to have the the bottom upwards you know uh for the cosmo part of part of the thing you know we need more you know we need more maturity in terms of personal psychological development and we need more maturity in terms of you know kind of cultural analysis and like 
why are these people disagreeing? Why aren't, you know, like, why are they fighting when they should be collaborating? Stuff like that. Hmm. Um, yeah. Um, but, you know, again, I, my tendency always, I'm, I'm always, my tendency is always to be a bridge builder in whatever scenes I find myself in at the, at the point. Uh, and so this is just an extension of, of that compulsion on my part. So what would you say uh, to, to uh, all, of, all of the people who are on, I, I guess what, what we would think of as the, the opposite sides of the camp. Um, I guess on one hand, you've got the, the people who are, you know, hating Trump and, and you know, really just trying to, to focus on saving the planet versus the people who just want to be left alone and go homestead and do their own thing and not hurt anybody and not take anything from anybody. Just, you know what I'm, how, what, what do you say to those people to get them to, to see the, uh, the possibilities space? Um, to talk about Trump as little as possible, to talk about national politics as little as possible. Speaking of um, scapegoats. You know, one, one dividing line I see between left and right localists is that left localists, and I, you know, and I think they're right about this, talk a lot about equity and justice, mm. right? And, and you know, the fact that uh, you need to, you know, like a lot of these kind of high level conversations have been done by, you know, uh, you know, white, you know, like all of, the, all of the acronyms that we talk about, like the dominant class or whatever. Um, and that, you know, we need to, to listen to indigenous voices and people of color, you know, so in that whole critique, you know, uh, I think is largely correct. Um, and so, and so they're just not work, they're not willing to work with people who, who, who might be supportive of someone like Trump for, you know, they, they kind of just like build a wall. It's like, okay, like, even though many of the people who support Trump you know, are, are, you know, white people who have also been, you know, uh, brutalized by globalization and by, um, you know, by free trade agreements, by, by automation. Um, and, you know, here in Appalachia, I mean, you have tons of dirt poor white people, you know, and have been for, for decades and centuries, you know, living in, in trailer parks, you know, and, and when they hear like, oh, you're a privileged, you're a privileged class, you know, like, I, I, I'd also be like, hey, go fuck yourself, right? Um, and so I, I think that um, that's one source of misunderstanding of like, but, but I think, you know, in terms of actual, like, when we're talking about something very practical, like, hey, we want, we want more sovereignty over our food system. We want to know where food comes from. We want to make sure it's safe. Um, uh, you know, uh, I, I think that the permaculture framework is a, is a big, is a bridge because I'm seeing a lot of kind of right-leaning populists who would be, you know, who, who, who probably supported Trump really interested in permaculture. And I've seen a lot of folks like this, you know, they recognize that, hey, I recognize that we have ecological problems. Uh, they might, you know, they might wrestle at climate change talk because they see that as just another, you know, excuse to control them, right? In this kind of centralized technocratic system but they are interested in taking care of the land um, and they are interested in having their own food um, and, you know, and, and sharing it. And I think that's, you know, that's similar to the kind of the anti-globalization leftist critique, you know, like kind of people that protested in Seattle, right. In the late nineties, early two thousands, like those kinds of people want the same things. Right. Um, and so, you know, so there's, I guess what I'm trying to argue is I, I don't, you know, by bridging these divides, I don't want to discount the justice critique of the left, left. but I'm, all I'm saying is, hey, you know, that's important, but we have 
really big fish to fry here. Like we're all gonna we're all gonna fucking die if we don't if we don't you know figure out some way to collaborate. Yeah, and uh, I guess if we if we acquire one or the other of those objectives and you know have like a perfectly socially just world and the earth dies, it doesn't matter it. And if, if we yeah. stay independent and you know and have have everything just the old country way you know right eyes then we're, we're still screwed so. and and also recognizing this is a little bit of a tangent but a lot of the you know what what is now kind of derogatorily called like woke stuff you know it's being appropriated by large corporate interests mm -hmm. right like they're they're figuring out how to appropriate you know like oh you know like amazon you know puts up a message we believe in black lives matter right well, but you're also, you know, you're also uh, perpetuating the system that, you know, marginalizes many black lives, um, you know, in, in an economic sense um, and, and many others as well. And so I, I think that one potential bridge is that, you know, it's just like, let's just stop with hypocrisy. You know, let's, let's actually get together and have authentic conversations mm -hmm. where, you know, we can air out, you know, we can heal our trauma together and not you know, not fight across battle lines. Um, and, you know, I, I, I tend to think that people on the right, you know, um, you know, are open to, to, you know, to recognizing, you know, the, the hard, the hard lot that minorities have had in this country, um, if they don't feel attacked, and they don't feel like it's all a hypocritical game by, by the government to control them and large corporations to control them. Yeah, not seeing the worst in, in, the, the other side is, is, is so important. I mean, it, yeah. and then going the, the extra mile to have that conversation and to see that, oh, wait, our interests do align here where we really all at the end of the day want a better life for ourselves, and we don't want the planet to die so that we can yeah. continue, you know, um, yeah. as a species and, you know, with the other species, I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how, how do you live well within the limits of the earth? I, I, to me, that's, that's kind of like the crux of the regeneration movement. Um, and the living well part speaks to kind of like maintaining cultural traditions, you know, having a sense of purpose and place in this world and living within the earth is doing it in a way that, you know, doesn't, doesn't undermine that capacity in the long term. And I think that's just, that's kind of a message that a lot of people can get behind. Uh, but it's flexible enough that what that will look like, you know, uh, will differ in many different places, right? Like, um, you know, it, it allows for kind of maximum cultural, di diverse cultural expression of, of those kinds of values. Hmm. Well, yeah, th this has been a really interesting conversation. I guess I'm, I'm a little bit more optimistic about the, um, I guess the waves of, of down cycle that uh, as we see the, the slow collapse happen and hopefully it'll be a slow collapse, but you're right, it does create opportunities. And in the meantime, we can, we can start to have those conversations with our, our, you know, our friends and neighbors and people that we think we hate because they were posting about Trump or you know Biden or right. whatever. We can, even do, we can even do more than conversations. We can start trading seeds with them, right? Like mm -hmm. uh, we can start, you know, um, bartering. We can start. I can deliver my my old, you know, uh, neighbor some eggs, right? Uh, you know, we we can start actually becoming more interdependent in sources of our sustenance. Yeah, and, and anybody out there who is building up those seed libraries, make sure you're not getting the the Bonnie seed packets from whatever company in Missouri, like it, yeah. it, it's so much, it's so much better to have a nice 
heirloom, you know, crop from your area, you know, it just yeah. grows a lot better. It's been, it's been geared to, to fit that um, environment, but um, yeah, exactly. We should be sharing, sharing resources that seeds are a great free way to do that. And um, I think, I think you're right. Permaculture is, is definitely a, a huge, huge place that, that people can meet in the middle. Um, so do you have any, any concluding thoughts? I think we're, we've run probably almost into the hour mark here. Okay. Um, concluding thoughts. Um, well, I mean, if, if what we're talking about is interesting to you, um, you know, there's, uh, and you want to learn more, uh, I would say you can reach out, you can reach out to either of us. Um, you know, I, I, I'm on Twitter. Uh, at Cognizor, so you can reach out to me there. Um, DM me, uh, my DMs are open. Um, and, you know, there's various networks that are forming and I'm part of a few of these networks. And, you know, if you just wanna learn more or get involved, um, you know, uh, we, can, we can make that happen, uh, yeah. And off the top of your head, um, can you uh, suggest any any resources uh like are, are there are there groups of bioregionalists that are forming that um you happen to know about starting to i mean I, i'm i'm pretty new to what i would consider a kind of a, a broad scale bioregion of southern appalachia but i'm currently trying to kind of network with other other people you know aligned in these in, in these values here it's just still very the early days um but we're, I'm, you know, hopefully, hopefully starting to network here. Uh, you know, it, it really depends. Um, you know, I know like Cascadia, like there's a whole, there's been a bioregional scene looking at kind of like Pacific Northwest, including Canada, you know, as part of a bioregion for a long time. Um, you know, uh, New England kind of has that identity, you know, especially like New Hampshire of like a localist identity particularly because it was spared from industrial agriculture because of the topology. And I, and I think Southern Appalachia has some of that as well. And I'm learning more about the history here, but I also think Southern Appalachia is, you know, I, I'm, I'm, um, I'm bullish on Southern Appalachia. I, I think this is gonna be, you know, um, uh, a, great, a great place to, to build these kinds of, you know, uh, e eco-nomies in the future. Yeah, if we can, if we can just keep the coal companies from chopping off, flattening all of the mountains, I guess they've sort yeah. of created some nice level spaces. Although it's it's pretty. Yeah, well, there's there's a movement to kind of regenerate some of these kind of like strip mined and and you know mountaintop removed places. Um, uh, refresh, I think it's probably like refresh Appalachia. There's a movement to do that, but yeah, no, I mean coal in Appalachia has been just a long century of of exploitation and extraction. Um, uh, but I think, you know, I think we all know that that coal is, is, is not long for this world. Uh, mm -hmm. And so hopefully we can, you know, regenerate those lands and, and also the people who, who live there and have been, you know, abused for so many decades. Yeah, so that's, that, that's, that's interesting. So I guess for, for people that are looking to escape to a, some sort of a haven for this, you know, maybe avoid all the flat places that just have tons of GMO corn planted there for the last <laughs> 30 years and I mean, the sad thing is that, you know, the Midwest is, it just has so much fertility, uh, but you're right. Um, you know, it's just, it's just dominated by, by big GMO, by big, you know, 
big farmer who probably doesn't even own his farm anymore, but you know is owned by an investor group or something, and they're trying to maximize quarterly profits. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think, you know, I would suggest parts of New England. I would suggest parts of the Pacific Northwest. I would suggest Southern Appalachia. I wouldn't suggest the Southwest. I'm from New Mexico. I love New Mexico, but um, the climate maps do not look good for for the Southwest in terms of in terms of heat and ability to grow food and water availability and everything else. Yeah, the, the, a lot of a lot of places out in the, the West are having a serious issue with water availability that kind of used up all the water underground now. And yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I guess uh, for those of you who are living in the in, you know in the middle of the the U.S. and in these you know Monsanto uh, lands. I guess don't give up. I think there's always hope for, for people to, to form. You know, yeah, and, and there's there's definitely local food movements, regenerative food movements. Like I know, I know that there's like a big scene in like around like Cincinnati and Ohio, and you know like like there's definitely you know there, there's definitely like pretty pretty robust movements, but they're they're facing some pretty big headwinds. Yeah, and folks yeah. go out and, and support your your local farm co-ops and your organic farmers and. Yeah, there, there's a lot more options out there than people are aware of, and I think that's that's one of the real shames of of you know the, the current situation is that you know people they'll jump on Google and they're going to see the the things that are the companies that are able to afford those Google ads. But I think there there are a lot of people that either just due to the pandemic and, and having to, or or just you know for for whatever reason, there's all kinds of micro businesses. So you know if we can find all those local people and, and support them, I think we can kind of. Yeah. Yeah, form a little bit of a safety net for the, the coming collapses. But uh, yeah, this has been a really fascinating conversation. I'm, thank you for the education on so many topics. And I really hope I get to have another conversation with you and um, and get an update on on what you're doing over at the, the university over at um, App State. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for inviting me on. This was really fun. And I, I also really dig what you're doing. We had a conversation before this and you're telling me about what you're up to. And you know, trying to create platforms for to spur local food economies. Um, so I, I think that's really awesome. And yeah, man, I look forward to talking again sometime soon and uh, staying connected. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, thanks a lot. We'll see you next cool. time.